17th chapter, when Paul is addressing the audience there on Mars Hill, there towards the end of his message where we, we listen or we have often heard said, in him we live and move and have our being. It's within this context that he's talking to those people there and he tells them that what he has put in man is for man to seek after him. And he says, when man seeks after him, he is not far from him. And that really is the message of the entire Bible, that God has desired a relationship with us. And what we find in the Bible is that plan put in place. We go back to the very beginning, and man had a perfect relationship with God there in the garden. And yet, man sinned, and so man was cast out of the garden, and the relationship with God then was severed. And therefore, when God said, in that day you shall surely die, they died that day because they were separated from God. And then God gives a bit of hope there when He's speaking to the serpent, when He gives a prophecy of Christ that He would be born of a woman, and that he would, the serpent would bruise His heel, and that this man, we know to be Jesus, would bruise His head. From that point on, we have this unfolding of Jesus Christ. And that is God's plan for us to have redemption, for us to have the relationship with Him. And the entire Old Testament is a guide towards that very end. We studied and read about Noah and the flood and the great destruction that was done by sin and the salvation that was offered by God. We study about the story of Babel when people are united and doing the things that they ought not to be doing, that God's not going to just allow that. And then we come to a man named Abraham, and that's where we're going to begin our study here this morning. Whoop, need to go back one. We're going to talk about Abraham, and we're going to go from Genesis chapter 12 to Exodus chapter 19, and that's quite a lengthy journey. Uh, so we're going to read some, and I'm just going to have to tell the story some. So I hope you bear with me. I'm not that great of a storyteller, but maybe with the pictures that'll help. <laughs> But all this is about God's redemptive plan, about restoring that relationship. And it begins here with the plan that's set forth when he talks to Abraham. Here he'll be mentioned as Abram. There it says in Genesis 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, God gives Abram three promises. And through those three promises, we have a, a plan that's set in, set in place about God's restoration plan. First of all, let's look at the first promise that He gives him. He says, get out of the, the country that you live in to a land that I will show you. So His first promise is that He would give him a land to dwell in. To do that, he would have to leave his father's house. He would have to leave the country that he's in. So it was a great leap of faith for Abraham at this time to, to move forward. And we find that uh, here we have a picture of, or a map of where he left. Right here would have been uh, Ur, where he was. And this is where he would have ended up there in Canaan. Now on this journey, his nephew comes along with him and we... Uh, are going to omit much of the story of Lot. We just don't have time to cover that. But with the, 
when they came to a place where it just wasn't possible for the two to exist with all the cattle, all the servants, and all the confusion and all these things. So Abram says to, or Abraham says to Lot, you choose where you want to go. And Lot then chooses to pitch his tent towards Sodom. And then Abraham goes and stands in the middle of Canaan, this land of Canaan, and God tells him, I want you to look northward and eastward, southward and westward. And then he says this to him there in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 15, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Remember in that first promise he says, Let me take you to a land that I will show you. He shows him this land and he says, Now this is yours and to your descendants and all those forever. Your descendants forever. Then we come to the second promise that we see in Genesis 12, that he would make of Abraham a great nation. The New Testament describes him as the father of many nations. He's not just the father of one. But it'll make sense why that's the case because of the third promise. But in the second promise, he says, I promise to make you a great nation. So he says, I'll give you a land. On this land, you will live. And you will live and your family will grow. And as your family grows, it will become this great nation. And then we come to the third promise where he says that all the families of the earth should be blessed. He later explains that a little differently. This is after he was, had taken Isaac up to the altar, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And we read in Genesis chapter 22, <coughs> excuse me, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this promise of all the families of the earth or the nations of the earth to be blessed, he said it would be done through your seed. So here's the land. Your family will become a great nation. And through that nation, there would be the seed or your offspring that would come along that would bless the entire world. Well, and that is described in Galatians 3, verse 16, where he's able to look back. Now to Abraham and his seed, where the promise is made, he does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. You see, this whole thing, all of this promise was to bring Christ. Let's start with a land. I'll make a great nation with your family. With your family, Christ will come. He didn't... He did promise Abraham at one point that I will make your descendants as numerable, innumerable as the sand of the seashore. But there was one seed that was the promise. And that one seed was Jesus Christ. All of that to bring about a relationship with man that was lost. But there was a little bit of a problem here. In order for Abraham to have a great nation and to have a seed later on that would bless the entire earth, He'd need to have children. And he didn't have any kids at this time. But we do read in Genesis chapter 21 and verse 1, And the Lord visited Sarah, and he said, And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, bore to him, excuse me, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 100 years old. Now this is after people like Methuselah, that lived 969 years. 
They didn't have that lifespan. It would be very similar to our lifespan. And can you imagine a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a child? That's what happened here. And Abraham and Sarah got a little bit impatient. Sarah really got a little impatient more than Abraham. She said, here, here's Hagar, my maidservant, so you can have a child. And we read in the text there that it was appointed that Sarah would be the mother. It was appointed a time in which that would happen, and it wasn't time yet, but Sarah got impatient. Matter of fact, when she got older, when God said that I'll bring you a child, she laughed. Incidentally, do you know what the name of Isaac is? What it means? Laughter. It means joy. Joy and laughter. So, here this young man was born. They were finally, this whole thing was set in place. We can move forward. And when Isaac was eight years old, God told Abraham to take him and sacrifice him. Abraham was willing to do that. He just took his son up there, laid him on the altar, and was ready to strike to sacrifice his son. Can you imagine that? The kind of faith that that would require that all these promises were made through this son and God asked him to sacrifice him? We'll talk a little more about this this afternoon, but you know why Abraham was able to do that? Why he had that kind of faith? Now, I took a class in, uh, in college that the professor was a history teacher, and he constantly was trying to teach the class that there was a difference between faith and reason. That faith is blind faith. It's not based on reason. It's reason is reason that there's no such thing as faith within reason. Believe me, we argued all semester. <laughs> Abraham, and his, this was his big... Reason why that faith doesn't have reason. Abraham had reason to believe in God's promises. You know why? He'd already done it. He was 100 years old when his son was born in the first place. He knew that God was going to keep his promises. Why in the world would he not believe that? So when he took him up to the altar to sacrifice him, he had faith because of the evidence that was already had already been supported. There was reason behind what he could do. And as he lifted his hand, the angel stopped his hand, and they went and got another sacrifice that God had promised. And Isaac grew, and he married a woman named Rebekah. Rebekah became with child. We read in Genesis 25, verse 21, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb, And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So 
Here again, his wife was barren. Plans seemed to kind of hold still because the promise then was given to Isaac. Once it was Abraham's, it passed to Isaac. Rebekah became a child and this constant struggle was going on within her. And she, why am I struggling like this? I, it shouldn't be like this. This is supposed to be a blessing from the Lord. So she went to ask about it. And in her was two nations, in Jacob and Esau. And those two would struggle forever. They're still struggling. All you see over there in the Middle East, that's all due to Jacob and Esau. Two countries that are constantly warring. Jacob later became Israel. And Esau later became what we know to be the, the nation of the Arabs. See, there's a constant struggle even today. Of all this stuff that started way back then. Esau came out red and he was hairy. But Jacob, when he came out, that Jacob grabbed his heel. And it would be that struggle from that point on too. You see, Jacob grabbed the heel because he wanted the control, he wanted the power. Now, that wasn't obvious back then. But it became obvious as Esau had been out in the field and he'd been working... And he finds Jacob there eating. And Esau is tired. He is hungry. And he comes to Jacob and he says, I need food. I'm going to (coughs) die. Excuse me. So Jacob says, well, I tell you what. You give me your birthright. There it is. He grabbed the heel. (laughs) You give me your birthright. And I'll give you a bowl of what I'm eating. This bowl of lentils. Esau says, well, what good is a birthright to me if I just die? Now, we've been hungry before, haven't we? My kids come to me and they say, I'm hungry. And we tell them they're going to have to wait. Well, I'm going to die. They're not going to die. Esau wasn't going to die just because he was a little hungry. But he was willing to sell his birthright. And he did. He traded his birthright for a a bowl of beans, basically. And so Jacob was blessed by his father. Now again, some trickery was involved. He had to trick his father. His father had become blind. And the blessing was supposed to go to Esau. The birthright didn't was going to go to Jacob, but not necessarily the blessing. So he tricks his father by taking some goat hair and putting it on his arm so that it, and his neck. So his father, when he feels him, he would feel the hair. That's a hairy dude, by the way. <laughs> and it would, goat hair would make him that, okay, that's my son. And that's what he did. And he went, went forward with that and in his Father blessed him instead of Esau, and there was a conflict between Jacob and Esau over that. Jacob later grows, and he goes and finds this woman. Oh, and she's beautiful. Everything that he could possibly want in a woman. Her name is Rachel. And he just, he would do anything, was willing to do anything to have her as his wife. So he goes to her father... Laban, 
And Laban says, if you want my, my daughter to marry, then you're going to have to work for me for seven years. And he says, no problem. I can do that. And he did. And the Bible describes it as it went, it just went like that. That's how much he loved her. So it comes time for the wedding night. And he gets, instead of marrying Rachel, he ends up marrying his, her older sister, Leah. So now he goes back to Laban and says, now wait a minute. I was supposed to marry Rachel and you gave me Leah. And she, he says, well, I can't give you my younger daughter before I give, you, give someone my older daughter. So he says, but if you work for me seven more years, you can have Rachel. Okay. He was willing to do it. Fourteen years he worked for a woman. That's how much love he had for her. And with these two wives, he had 12 kids. Leah had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin. Bilhah, which was Rachel's uh, maidservant, had Dan and Naphtali. And Zilpah, which was Leah's maidservant, had Gad and Asher. Leah kept wanting these children because she thought that eventually... Jacob would love her like she, he loved Rachel. That maybe if I have all these kids, the next one will be the one that he says finally pledges his love to me. All the while, for a long time, Rachel was without children. And Leah would kind of throw that in Rachel's face. There was this conflict that was going on. But once all of these kids were born, he had a favorite. You know Why? Because it was Rachel's. <laughs> it was his favorite wife. And then he had his favorite son, and that was Joseph. <clears throat> he showed how much he loved him by giving him a coat of many colors. Now, we wear colors like they're no big deal. Because colors are affordable today. Colors back then were quite hard to come by. Very expensive to make. And this coat had many colors. And he gave it to his son, and his brothers didn't like that. Joseph also had a dream where these 11, 12 sheaves were standing. Eleven of them bend over towards the one. And he tells his brothers what this means. The eleven sheaves are you, the one is me. Oh, man. <laughs> man, they got mad. They didn't like that a bit. They got so mad that they started to conspire to kill him. Well, Reuben comes along. Remember, that's older brother. Older brothers are supposed to protect the rest of them. He says, now wait a minute. <coughs> Let's not kill him. So what they did was they took his coat of many colors, and they had trapped an animal. They killed the animal. They put the blood on that coat, and they sent him or sold him to some, some Ishmaelites. They took this coat and they bring it back to their father and they said to Jacob, your son is dead. Jacob mourned the rest of his life over the loss of his son. It was a lie. wasn't true. But he mourned. Because he had lost his favorite son. So Joseph then goes into Egypt... 
And he's sold there by the Ishmaelites to a man named Potiphar. And let's just kind of go through some things about, about Joseph. First of all, he was sold to Potiphar. Then we find that he was made the overseer of the house. It was obvious that Joseph was a man of God. So not only was he the favorite of his father, he became the favorite of Potiphar's servants. That's the kind of man that he was. Well, evidently, Potiphar's wife took a liking to him too. And she wanted to be with him. Uh, Being the good man that he was, he tried his best to stay away from her. But at one point, they got alone. And she wanted to lay with him. And he said no, and he tried to get out of there, and she grabbed his cloak and pulled it off. Realizing what had just happened, she starts telling everybody that he tried to lay with her. Now, Potiphar could have put Joseph to death. But I'm sure that in some way he realized this is not the kind of man Joseph is. But he had to honor his wife, so he put him in the prison. While he's in prison, he comes across these two individuals. One was a butler and the other a baker. Let me see. Let's. Oh, I forgot. He was also given authority over the prisoners. Once again, he's dropped down low and he's brought back up because he was given authority over the prisoners. The prison guard saw the same thing that Potiphar saw. They saw the same thing that Jacob had seen. He was just an honorable man, and he was given charge over the prisoners. And these two prisoners, one being a butler, has a dream. And in this dream, he sees this grapevine, and he pulls the grapes off the vine, and he squeezes the grapes into the Pharaoh's cup. The Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. And he doesn't understand this dream. So Joseph comes to explain to him, in three days... You will go back to being the servant or the butler of the Pharaoh. Another man had had a dream. He was a baker. And he thought, well, that was good news. Maybe I'll get good news too. So he goes to Joseph with his dream. And his dream was that he had a basket on his head and that these birds came and flew on top of the basket and kept eating what was in the basket. And Joseph told him, well, in three days, you're going to be hung. And the birds are just going to feed on your flesh. That wasn't good news. (laughs) Having that come true, Joseph tells the butler, Remember me. When you go to the Pharaoh's house, remember me. And he didn't. For two years, he sat in that prison. And then the Pharaoh had a dream. A disturbing dream. Nobody could interpret this dream. He didn't know what it meant. This dream was he saw, that's only one, but he saw seven cows that looked like that, about like that. Just healthy, good, fat cows, the kind you want to take to the, to the butcher and just cut them up and eat them. And, you know, that's the kind of beef that he saw. But those seven cows were overtaken by this kind of cow. Just this nasty, gnarly, skinny looking, that's not a healthy cow. (laughs) So seven good cows overtaken by these seven skinny cows. He also saw these seven (coughs) ears of corn or ears of grain. It's not 
easy to, to, to read that, to gain what kind of plant it was. But he saw these seven ears that were healthy. Have you ever taken corn on the cob and just pulled it off the stalk and just ate it right there? I've done that. It's good. It's good raw like that. As long as it's not pesticides and all that stuff, obviously. Good raw, it doesn't matter. You can boil it. You can fix it however you want to. It's just good. That, that's the kind of corn that is. So he saw seven of those on one stalk. And then he saw this. Seven like that. There's nothing you can do with that. It's no good. You can't eat it. Nasty. So Joseph, the Pharaoh, is just out of his mind trying to understand what this dream was all about. Joseph comes to him and he says, the first seven years are represented by the seven healthy cows, the seven good-looking ears of corn. And you're going to have seven years of plenty of food. But that's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And it's going to be a worldwide famine where there will be no food. And Joseph says what we ought to do then is to store up during those seven years of plenty. And then during those seven years of famine, we have plenty of food that people can eat. And so the Pharaoh says to him, you're the man. He says, you, have, you are second in authority. Only to me do you answer. So Joseph sold into slavery, cast into prison, and now he's the right-hand man of the Pharaoh. And as a right-hand man of the Pharaoh, during that seven years of plenty, they do gather it up, they store all the grain, they, they keep everything where there'd be plenty of food during those seven years. Egypt was the only place that had food. Everybody else was going hungry. Jacob and Joseph's brothers were still back over there where there wasn't any food. So Jacob decides to send his sons, and he sends all but Benjamin, the only other child that was born of Rachel. He keeps him behind. <clears throat> and all the rest of them go to, to get food. And who's in charge? It's Joseph. So Joseph is in charge of distributing the food, and he kind of plays some games with them. They don't recognize who he is. So he says, you go back and you get your younger, son, younger brother. Unless you bring him back, you won't get any food. And on their journey, they realize when they get about halfway there on the journey... They realize he gave them much more than just food. Then they start worrying about, we're not supposed to have this. <clears throat> Let's just go get our brother and come back. Well, eventually Joseph reveals himself to him. You know what they do when they realize who it is that's second in control of the Pharaoh? Yep, they bow down. Just like the dream he had in the beginning. Those sheaves were bowing down to the one. He tells them, get up. They hug, they embrace. And he makes a deal then with Pharaoh that they would be able to come to Egypt because that's where the food was. He wanted to take care of his family. And so they travel from there to the land of Goshen, <clears throat> which is up here. Most of Egypt was right here. This is kind of on the edge out there where Goshen was. And that's where they came uh, to dwell. Seventy people of the family of Jacob, they move over. One was already in 
Egypt, that being Joseph. So 71 people. Then there in Exodus, we read that the, the Pharaoh just, or that they multiplied greatly <clears throat> to the point that the Pharaoh got a little concerned. Now, this was a different Pharaoh. Joseph died, and all that generation died, all his brothers. Also, the Pharaoh died that had the relationship with Joseph. So there was no connection there anymore. So the Pharaoh gets a little concerned, and we read in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 9, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. <clears throat> Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters masters about, over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they build for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. He says, uh, consider this for just a moment. Egypt, you, if you've ever studied any history, the very first civilization that you're going to talk about that's not nomads and not you know, wanderers, the first major civilization you're going to talk about is Egypt. The first empire you talk about is Egypt because it was the first world power. During this time, this was a world power. Enemies on all, all sides. They wanted to have any, you know, just take Egypt out. If we can take Egypt and take their treasure, we can become the world power. And so he sees all these children of Israel just start to multiply and grow. He says, we got a problem. If one of these other nations decides to come in and to fight with us, what's to keep them from joining the battle? We'll deal shrewdly with them. Let's just put them into slavery. Oh, and they did. They did all kinds of things to these poor people, to the Hebrews, as they called them. That was a derogatory term from the Egyptians, a slave term. Didn't matter. God still blessed them. And I believe all that was a part of God's plan. Seventy nomads wandering in all over the place are vulnerable. People can do all kinds of things to 70 people. Nations can attack them and take them over. So God put them in the only place, or the best place, for them to survive. Even in this slavery, they were protected by the armies of Egypt. You might say that as they are starting to become a nation, that this was the incubator that allowed for them to survive, being in this great power of Egypt. But in slavery, there, there came a point where they were told to make bricks. And they were making bricks. And you make bricks with straw. And it, to, just to make it harder, they took the straw away and said, now you make the same amount of bricks. They had to keep the same quota. That's the kind of attitude that the Egyptians had towards the Hebrews. Just, let's just make it harder, harder. The Pharaoh still got concerned about God multiplying them to the degree that he was. And he says, let's start killing the firstborn children. Now, the women who were uh, assisting in the birthing of those children, they didn't want to do that. They knew what they served. They knew what the children of Israel were serving, and that was a God. 
a God above their gods. And they didn't want any part of it. But still the decree went out. And this woman had a child. And to protect him, she puts him into a, an ark, which is just basically a box. Puts that in the river, and he floats down the river, and he's picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh. And she picks him up and raises him. Now keep this in mind, this is very important. He was raised as an Egyptian in the Pharaoh's house, a grandson to the Pharaoh. All the while, he was truly a children of Israel, a child of Israel. He was a Hebrew. He was perfectly Egyptian and yet perfectly Hebrew. As he grows up, his Hebrew mentality kicks in. <laughs> he has more allegiance towards those people than he does his, the Egyptians. And he sees an Egyptian just going to town on one of his brethren. And he can't stand it. He looks around and nobody's there. So he decides he's going to kill that Egyptian. And he buries him in the sand thinking that he's alright. The next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting. And so he goes to separate them and says, you can't do this. You're brethren. And one of them says, are you going to kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian? Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. I thought nobody was looking. So he decided to leave there and he went to a land of Midian. He married a woman, had some kids, had a good life going there. And he comes across this burning bush. This bush that was burning and yet not being consumed. Last night, for some strange reason, my kids decided that they wanted to have s'mores. And we went out in the backyard and we built a little campfire. Oh. It's not good to have a campfire in 105 degree weather. It's hot. The chocolate was melted before we ever got it on the s'more. But you know what happens with a fire? With the wood that you put in a fire, it burns up. Well, this bush wasn't. It was burning, but not burning up. And God says, I need you to lead my people. I need you to take them out of slavery. I've heard their cries. I've heard their prayers. I want you to lead them out. <coughs> Why Moses? Why do you suppose Moses would be the one to do that? Well, who else could approach the Pharaoh but the Pharaoh's grandson? Who else can talk to the children of Israel except an Israelite? He was the perfect one. Because he was Hebrew and he was Egyptian at the same time. Christ sits on the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2 says, that it would not be robbery for him to be called God. John chapter 1 tells us that he is God. But we also learn that he became flesh. He was willing to become a man. To live on this earth, to die, to, to learn under obedience, as it says in Philippians 2, even to the death of the cross. His name, Emmanuel, means God with us. He is perfectly God and he is perfectly man. Is there a better mediator for mankind? 
Moses is a picture of that kind of a mediator because he was perfectly Hebrew and perfectly Egyptian at the same time. So Moses just jumps right up and says, yes, I'll go. No. I don't want to do that. i got a good life here. If I go, how will they believe me? God says, well, what is in your hand? He says, it's a rod. He says, throw that down. He throws it down and becomes a serpent. He said, pick it up again. It becomes a rod. He said, put your hand in your, in your shirt. He puts his hand in his shirt. He pulls it out. It becomes leprous. He says, put it in again. He puts it in and pulls it out, and it's just like the other hand. He says, if that doesn't work, I'll turn the water into blood. Moses, you don't have any excuses. Well, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm not a good speaker. Well, then I'll give you your brother. I'll speak to you, you speak to Aaron, and Aaron will address to the people. Oh, I just don't want to do it. That's what he comes down to. All these excuses, and God was taking those excuses away. God says, I need you to go. So Moses goes. And he goes and talks to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I'm not, I've got a good thing going here. I'm building pyramids on the sweat of them. I, I don't need to, I don't want to let them go. So Moses does what God had told him to do. He throws down his rod and becomes a serpent. You have the whole leprosy thing and all those other things. And all at the same time, these magicians of Egypt are doing the same thing. Oh, yeah? Well, I'll show you. I can do the same thing. The difference was that Aaron's rod swallowed up the rest of those serpents that were all around there. Showing the superiority. But that Pharaoh, he was hard-hearted. He didn't want to let him go. So that brings on plagues. This first plague that was sent was the water, rivers of blood. Now that is not a river of pure blood. There's water and blood in it. That's a slaughterhouse river. So there's blood in there. Look, just look at the animals that are just waiting for something. To, that's just disgusting, isn't it? Could you imagine the smell? The not being able to drink anything. Just the disgustingness. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. The disgustingness of that river of blood. Now, Egypt was the kind of place that, that was the power that they were because they had the river. They had the Nile. And now all that's taken away, what do they have? So the Pharaoh says, if you'll take this away, I'll let some of them go. Moses said, no, that's not going to work. So he says, fine, just take it away. And I'll let your people go. So, God takes it away. And the Pharaoh goes, hmm. No, <laughs> I changed my mind. So God sends a second plague, and that being frogs. And this is an actual picture of somewhere in Florida that had all kinds of frogs. Just and they called it a plague of frogs. I bet it was nothing like Egypt. Everywhere they turned, there was a frog. You couldn't eat without being, there being a frog. And we're not talking frog legs. They just had all kinds. These frogs were everywhere. They couldn't get anything done because all these frogs were there. Pharaoh says, take them away. I'll let your people go if you'll just take them away. So Moses took them away. And Pharaoh changed his mind. 
then God sends the, the third one. The plague of lice. Do you imagine the ickiness of the lice being everywhere? He just turned the, the dust into lice. Now, up to this point, the magicians were able to produce, to turn water into blood. They were able to produce frogs out of nowhere. But when it came to the dust turning into lice, they were like, okay, we're done. We can't do any more than that. And this lice was everywhere. So Pharaoh says, okay, if you'll take it away, I'll let them go. So God took them away. And the Pharaoh changed his mind. So then we get a plague of flies. Just flies everywhere. You can't hardly move. You can't see without these flies just being everywhere. And the Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let him go if you'll take this away. So God takes it away. And the Pharaoh changes his mind. So he sends him pestilence. The livestock just dead. Just laying everywhere. Again, you have that rotten smell. You have all your food being gone. All the while, the Hebrew children, they had all their food. Their livestock was fine. It was obvious it was God that was doing this. So the Pharaoh says, fine, if you'll take this away, I'll let you go. God takes it away. Pharaoh changes his mind. This was the nicest looking picture I could get for boils. If you ever do a Google search for boils, just get ready. It's disgusting. That's what I, I did, and that's the best one I came up with. And that's, but <clears throat> I did that all at the same time. They weren't dealing with pictures, and they weren't dealing with just their feet. They had boils from head to toe. They were in pain. So the Pharaoh says, fine, if you'll take this away, I'll let them go. So God takes them away. Pharaoh changes his mind. So God sends hail to destroy the crops. Their cows were already gone. Their livestock already gone. Now the crops were gone. Because all this hail that had come from the sky. Pharaoh says, take it away and I'll let them go. God takes them away. Pharaoh changes his mind. So then there's locusts everywhere. Pharaoh says, take it away and I'll let them go. God takes them away. Pharaoh changes his mind. So God sends darkness. Now, this is the best way to describe darkness so you could visually see it. But really, it was more like that. They couldn't see the hand in front of their face. Complete and total, utter darkness. Pharaoh says, take it away and I'll let them go. God takes it away, the Pharaoh changes his mind. So then we have the final plague, the one that did it. God says to the children of Israel, you need to prepare. I want you to go get a lamb on this night, and you get everybody in the house, and I want you to kill that lamb, and I want, to take, I want you to take the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. 
take what's rest, take the lamb inside, eat that lamb, use that for food. No leftovers. Every bit of it ought to be consumed. Take unleavened bread. Get it ready. But spread this blood over the doorpost. Why? Because an angel of death was going to come through Egypt. And that angel was going to kill all the firstborn children of Egypt. Sparing only those that had the blood on the doorpost. Pharaoh lost his son. The cry in Egypt was awful. Finally, the Pharaoh says, Go. Get out of here. So they do. They gather everything and they leave. And they get get a good ways off. And yet again, Pharaoh changes his mind. The dude never learns. And he pays for it. As he takes his army to go hunt them down, to get them back, he's charging in on them. All the while, God has protection on them. Behind him is a pillar of fire to make sure that those Egyptians can't get to them. But they come to this place at the Red Sea. How are we going to, what are we going to do now? How are we going to cross this sea at the same time we have the Egyptian army bearing down on us? So God tells Moses to raise his staff and the sea parts. And the amazing thing to me about this is it says that they walked on dry ground. You know, when you take dirt and it has water in it, you know, on top of it, and you take, pour, try to pour the water out, what's left? Mud. Not dry ground. It's mud. God completely took the moisture, the water, out of there so that they could cross. And still with this pillar of fire protecting them from the Egyptian army, all those people cross. God removes the pillar. The Egyptian army bears down on them. Moses puts down his arms. And the sea comes down on them. And kills them. You know, there's evidence of this. You can look it up in archaeology. They found Egyptian chariot wheels and chariot parts and weapons in the area that they would have crossed. So that was God's way of escape that He would grant them through this Red Sea, through the water that Moses parted so that they could cross onto dry ground. And they go through the wilderness and they come to this place called Mount Sinai. In the wilderness of Sinai. And Exodus 19 and verse 1 says, In the month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. So, they come to this wilderness come to this mountain and their God will continue His plan. He will continue to work with His children, this nation that He promised long ago back to Abraham. You know, one of the... We're going to study some things more about this in in the particulars this afternoon. 
But I would like to leave you with this thought here this morning. The people who were blessed by God were those that had faith in Him and that obeyed Him. Those that did not suffered the fate of the Pharaoh and his army. We need to put our faith in Him to obey Him. Jesus is the perfect mediator between you and God. Because He's perfectly God and He's perfectly man. Whatever your struggles are, He knows what they are. Whatever temptations you face, He's faced them too. He knows how to overcome them. He knows exactly what your pain feels like. He knows exactly what your joy feels like. And He simply wants you to put your trust in Him. Have faith in Him. And just like those who crossed the Red Sea, that went through the water, He wants you to go through the water, water being His blood. The water being baptism. That we die with Him, we're buried with Him, we're wise to walk in newness of life. In His death, we come into contact with His blood, the blood that can cleanse you from your sins. And all He asks of you is to trust Him and to obey Him. Won't you do that this morning by coming forward and sitting on the front as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.